The scripture reading will be found from Acts chapter 12, verses 25, through chapter 13, verses 12. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And Bartimaeus and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaim, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet, named Bar-Jesus. He was with the principal Sirius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of the righteousness, full deceit and um, valiant, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for the, the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what he had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Shirley. That was rough. There's a couple names in there. I appreciate the. Well, uh, hey guys, my name is Sean, if I don't know you. I'm the lead pastor here and teaching pastor. Uh, for the most part, you'll see me up here on Sundays if you are new. Um, a couple things that came to mind before we jump into the text, uh, I just kind of jotted down that I, I think are worth noting, uh, just kind of piggybacking on some of the things that uh, Demeter came up and said. And that is, um, when I, Candace and I were part of the Harder community, there was a, a man from India, well, but even before that, we sent out a woman to kind of fight sex trafficking as a community, uh, this, this girl named Sophie Davis, and she connected us with this man from India who was looking to translate uh, the Bible into uh, languages within India that it wasn't being translated already. And so we raised some money to get him a computer to do that. And Candace and I took him out to lunch one Sunday. He actually came. It was like four weeks after we had started. He had came, and um, we had talked at lunch, and just I'd asked him a bunch of different questions. But I was talking to him about church, and essentially where he was going, a lot of Christianity was illegal, and, um, and so I just asked him, I said, man, so what's that like? Like, where do you guys meet? You know, like, how do you know where you're meeting? And he said just the most profound statement that I think is really good to, to um, affirm what John had said. He just looked at me and he said, we just tell each other. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's good, right? Um, because the, the idea was not like, hey, we, you know, when it, and for him, it's crazy someone who's translating the Bible already struggling with the, with the idea that church is this place, Right? And I think God, in a lot of ways, um, has been putting us in motion really um, in faithful ways to remind us as nomads that, like, we are doing what we're doing here. And so um, there's just two things that I think are worth 
I, you know, listen, at the end of the day, I don't love being at uh, elementary school. Um, but here's what's really cool about this. One, um, there's no darkness. Like, lights are up. Everybody knows who's singing, right? Um, which is really, really cool. Um, because there's, there's the guy who doesn't sing well. Um, Chris, he was behind me. Um, and, 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 and so, so there, here's this kind of thing that we're looking around, but we're also recognizing it's not just this hidden voice. We're singing together, which is really, really cool. And two, and this is what I already said, when we come here and we leave here, there's no saying, hey, did you go to the church today? So when I got saved, I was, there was always a building. You could never say something like, hey, I left it at the church. Uh, we had to do set up at the church. There is no the church for us, right? There is a school that our church meets in, which is really, really cool. So I just want to challenge you to embrace that. Um, I don't know, for whatever it's worth, two months, I think it's awesome. I know it's true for Centennial as well, but there's no hiding it when there's food pyramids on the wall, right? So um, let's, let's go hard with that. Cool. All right. So uh, if you don't know, we've been in Acts, uh, and we're kind of going through it uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, not kind of we are. So if you guys already have an open, you can go to 13. I'll read verse 25 from chapter 12 in a minute, but we're going to go to immediately 13 and kind of hit the ball or hit the ground running. Um, and here's where I want to start. The book of Acts, uh, without summarizing it, just know is meant to be read in community. So a lot of what Shirley came up and read is actually how the book of Acts would have been read to the early church. It was important. This is really important because for us to understand that, we have to step back and go, the churches uh, of, of, or the book of Acts is meant to be read together. And so now we're studying it together. And I, I have a, a bunch of friends who are really on the, like the house church thing. Why, you know, you just stand up there and you teach and a bunch of people just listen. Here's what I need you to understand. What we're doing in Acts is we're reminding ourselves in this moment on Sunday that as we scatter from here, this thing's real. Meaning this, Candace was just hanging out with a couple friends uh, last week and she was talking to them and she brought up Pee Wee Herman. Okay. Now these two people are five years, seven years younger than she is. And hear me when I say this with all of the remorseful, they didn't know who Pee Wee Herman was. Okay. So we get home and I go to Jude who's staying with us. Jude's 24, I don't know, 19, 10, whatever how old he is. Um, and I go, Jude, you know who Pee Wee Herman is. And he goes, uh, and I go, get out. Okay. Okay. So, so here's what I have a, a, a cultural responsibility um, with my kids, they're, they've watched the Goonies already. That has happened. Okay. Um, when, when they're, I need them to be a little bit older before I can get top gun. Cause there's some, some language early, you know, but, but it will happen. Okay. Um, there, there's movies that I'm like, whether you like it or not, we're going to watch every Disney movie that was on VHS before it ever came to this whole downloaded on Apple TV thing. Okay. So we're watching all these. We're going to get Mary Poppins in next week. It's going down. Because here, here's the reality. There's an appreciation for all these things that I have that they don't. So they kind of just watch X-Men and they're like, this is awesome. No, no, no. It's good. Okay. But nothing compares to Top Gun. That's what you don't understand. Okay. Now, this is why people who say LeBron's better than Jordan don't know what they're talking about. Um, now, now the reason I say all of that, what a terrible way to start um, uh, our time together, is because we're going to read an account that is monumental to understand and how much it affects the way we operate today, okay? We're going to read an account of God going hard uh, on this guy named Bar-Jesus, and we're going to understand why this is a big deal, okay? So we're looking back at the old movies to appreciate the current reality that we're in, if that makes sense, okay? So uh, let's get through some of um, uh, the initial verses here. 
Let's start in verse 25, chapter 12. Um, if you weren't here last week, Jim laid down uh, um, the, the back half of uh, chapter 12 in Acts. And let me just read the last verse. It says this, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose, name, whose other name was Mark. So if you were here last week, the last time we're going to hear about Peter as being the main character was what Jim did last week, okay? So if you've been with us from the beginning, what you've noticed is it's kind of gone Peter, 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 Paul, Peter, Peter, Paul, Peter, Paul, Peter, Paul, Peter, Paul. And now it's going all Paul, okay? And, and we won't hear from Peter as the main character again the rest of the book of Acts. From now on, the main character outside of God himself is Paul moving forward in the book of Acts. And so what we find is the camera switches back to Paul and Barnabas, and they, they've completed their service uh, within Jerusalem. So bring with them John, uh, John, whose also name is Mark. So here they go um, moving forward. So let's start uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Verse 2. While they are worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay? Lest we think this is some throwaway verse, I want to remind you of two weeks ago because the camera was on Paul and Barnabas. Jim went to Peter, and now we've gone back to Paul and Barnabas. And I want to pick up what I, something I was talking about two weeks ago in that essentially we looked at the church of Antioch and we said, How is God moving? And I don't know if you remember this, but I I gave you four ways that I think the text was showing us in which God was moving. He was moving through trials, right? Remember, persecution was going on. He was moving through verbal proclamation. He was through the fact that the Antioch church was a giving people. And then also there was obscurity, that they weren't looking for their own fame. So we continue that. And it was hard for me two weeks ago not to jump forward to this passage. But Luke doesn't, so we're not going to. We're now here. And there's a couple other things about this church in Antioch that I think are worth noticing before we get to the passage with Bar. Jesus, which is this. There's those four things. I would argue there's three more things that a healthy church does or a way a healthy church looks outside of those four things that I just mentioned. The first thing is this. The the, the church in Antioch is unbelievably spirit-led. As we see here in this moment, they hear the Holy Spirit speak to them. They pray they fast, and, and, and here, this is, this is really important, um, because if you call Redemption Peoria your home, um, January 1st, and I'm going to bring this up, um, January 1st, so I stand up here with the elders, and the, the, the other three elders basically say, hey, Sean's going to take a break, right? And that's a really hard part, because at, at this point, two years in our church plant, every church dynamic thing that you can put in front of a church or how to grow a church, it's to not set the lead pastor down for five months. That's a bad idea. But because this church, and I will give, I, will, I put Jim, John, and Vince in that moment are being spirit-led, they move forward. And I, I need you to understand this. Um, we're going to make mistakes, but at the end of the day, we will be a church that is spirit-led. I'm t- I, and I, and, and and my charismatic likeness won't even let me let that go for a while. Like I'm sitting here going like, we need to start speaking in tongues more. We need to start fasting more, right? There's a part of me that wants to continue to remind you, like the church of Antioch, we want to mimic that, that this church is spirit led. So that's, I would say the fifth thing, if you remember the four things that I mentioned before, but the first thing today, here's another thing that I think is really, really awesome. Um, a healthy church is diverse. And um, maybe that makes some of you uncomfortable immediately, but let me just point out a couple things. There are five leaders mentioned in the, the church of Antioch here. Listen, listen to who they are. There's Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manian, and Saul. Now, 
So here, I, just some, I put some things on each of their names. We already know Barnabas, right? Barnabas is the guy that we've met early on. He's an encourager, so on and so forth. Simeon, he has a Latin name called Niger, which is black. The, the, the name is Jewish. It's unlikely not from Africa, um, he, though he's uh, probably dark-skinned. But, but um, the way his name is, Simeon's not an African name. So uh, more than likely, historically, it's, it's not, um, he's not from Africa. But Lucius, he has a Latin name, okay? But he's a Gentile. And, and more, than, more than anything, because he's, well, he's from Cyrene, he is from Africa. Not more than anything, he is, if we know ge- geography at all. Uh, Manian uh, is the Greek form of a Hebrew, which is Manaham. So he's like the, this Hellenistic Jew. I'll explain all this in a second, why this is important. And then we got Paul, okay? So here's our five guys. This is really important. The five main leaders in Antioch, listen again. There's Barnabas, who's a Jew and a leader in Jerusalem. There is a Latin man named Simeon. He was Jewish, even though he was Latin, okay, and apparently darker-skinned. There's another man who was Latin, the next guy, uh, Lucius, who was Latin, but he was a Gentile. Then the guy after this, he's a Hellenist, Manian, but he grew up in affluence. He grew up the same guy, uh, Herod the Tetrarch, who um, was the one who was responsible for killing John the Baptist. He grew up with that Herod, okay? So, so here's this guy who, grew, who grows up in a completely socioeconomic different platform than these other guys have. And then we have Paul, who's religious fanatic, gone murderer, gone Christian, right? So you put all these guys together, that makes up the leadership of the church in Antioch. So I just, I want to say this, this is a big deal. Lest we just read these names and go over, the church in Antioch is diverse. And hear me, it's not just diverse, but two of the strongest Christians at the time are Paul and Barnabas. And I want you to notice what they do with Paul and Barnabas. Look at our text again. So it mentions the five guys, verse two. And while they were worshiping the Lord, uh, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I have called them. Here's the seventh thing and the last thing, and then we'll get to bar Jesus. A healthy church is absolutely not just on mission in their city, but they understand the global epidemic that's going on around them. And this church is on mission and they care about missions. And so we would say a healthy church cares about missions and they don't just care about missions because here's the trick. If you don't know the church world, the talented guys who rise up, me, everything within me and probably within the elders as well, wants those guys to stay here. You're, you're talented. You can teach or you can preach or you can give or whatever it is, right? Whatever, like, like forget all those things. Um, uh, you can counsel really well. You sit down with people really well and listen. Um, uh, you host like nobody's business. At my core, I don't want you to leave. But that's not what happens. A healthy church looks at these people and goes, hey, listen, you could be a good teacher or you could be a pastor. No, let's send our best. Let's send our best. Let's send the people who know the Lord, who are secure in who they are, and let's be on mission in that way. So I know this may feel like in some ways two different sermons, but I think it's just worth acknowledging in this moment, this church is a healthy church. Um, and I think it's a healthy church because it continues to replicate itself. Like I, I know guys who want to plant churches for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, I'm going to plant a church because they suck and I know how to do church, the church thing. And yet here's the church of Antioch who's healthy and they're replicating what is healthy. And at our core, that's what we want to do as well. So for whatever it's worth, just throwing that out to you guys. Um, so here we go. Let's go to verse five. Paul and Barnabas are sent out. Um, 
The church sends them out, and, uh, and their first mission trip is to uh, Cyprus, which is important. You'll see over the next couple of weeks, we're going to throw some maps on the screen. We're in the book of Acts, and you're going to see three missionary journeys by Paul. I said the camera's going to stay on Paul. We're going to follow Paul through three missionary journeys. I don't have a map today, but um, we're going to follow him. And this is the first one, uh, chapters 13 and 14, that we're going to see Paul's missionary journey. So let's do it. Verse 5, let's get at what happens with Bar-Jesus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So the first thing that they do when they arrive onto Cyprus, which is this island off the coast there, is they immediately go to the synagogues. Paul and Barnabas walk into the synagogues. So I need you to imagine there's a new faith, but we, they want to come to Christianity to start this new faith. So they come within the temple, the church, and they go, hey, we've got news for you. Blank is real. And we're going, whoa, 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 whoa. That messes up the whole paradigm of of what we know about our religion. And so here's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They go into the synagogues first, which is a common practice. They do this a lot. And they have John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. If you don't know what a proconsul is, a proconsul is someone who represents a council. Okay, so Sergius Paulus is a guy who represents a, a Roman council. Now, Sergius Paulus is a man of intelligence who summoned uh, Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elmias, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, which just in Hebrew, that's, it sounds like the name uh, magician, um, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here is um, Paul and Barnabas. They arrive on the scene. They go to the synagogue first. Things don't really play out. But here's this guy, Sergius Paulus, who's hearing about them. And so he says, hey, come talk to me. He's a man of intelligence. He wants to hear what's going on. But there's this guy, Bar-Jesus, who's this magician, who's kind of like at his side. And he hears that these guys are coming. And so there's this dynamic of Bar-Jesus there, Sergius Paulus, who wants to hear the word of the Lord, and then Paul and Barnabas. And Bar-Jesus does not like what Paul and Barnabas are saying. So here he is, whether whispering in his ear or bringing him to another room and talking to him, he opposes Paul and Barnabas. Now, let's just stop there very quickly because this is where I want to bring us all in and make sure we've all watched Top Gun together. We've all seen the same movies, what excites us and what should get our blood flowing. Bar-Jesus is not the first and he will not be the last person, system, community that comes up against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear me when I say this, before him, it was Herod. Before Herod, it was Paul himself, Saul. Before him, before uh, even Saul, it was the high council in chapters like two through five. Even before that, Jesus says, give me all you've got in death. And nothing over and over and over can stop this thing called Christianity. And it doesn't end here, you guys. It absolutely doesn't end here. What we have is historical count after historical count of Roman councils and governments trying to stop this. So uh, once a year, um, we'll go, uh, our whole family will we'll drive at, at one point, we're going to go in July uh, to the beach. And we'll go to the beach, and every time, I'll take Corbin and Titus, my nine-year-old and seven-year-old, and we're going to stand, and we're going to stand until we're about waist deep in the water, and apparently there's a lot of sharks over there, so hopefully not get eaten by a shark at that point. But we're going to stand waist deep in the water, and I'm going to go, let's try to stop the waves, okay? And so we go, no, right? And you watch Titus, and he's like, no, okay? And he just gets en- engulfed in this wave, right? But he gets up, and he tries again. Hear me when I say this. There's nothing that is going to stop the wave of Christianity. There's nothing. 
Like, like even Roman councils, uh, uh, right after the time of Paul, in which we're reading, all the way up to Constantine, there was edict after edict. This guy named uh, Eusebius, who was a, a church historian, actually recorded this guy who tells an account of this. His name's Diocletian. You may have heard his name. He, he ruled late 200s. He said this. Uh, Eusebius said this. Ru- uh, royal edicts were published everywhere in Rome, commanding that the churches be leveled to the ground and scriptures be destroyed by fire. And hear me, the next Roman official, the next Roman emperor makes Christianity illegal. Who is Diocletian? Who, who is Bar-Jesus? Who is Herod? Who is Saul? Who's the high council? It doesn't end there. Listen, over and over, in the 1700s, a guy named Voltaire makes a promise that in 100 years, he's born late 1700s, he's a, a French infidel, and he, he promises that in 100 years, all Bibles and Christianity will be wiped off the face of the earth. The hilarity of all of that is once he dies, the very printing presses that he used to print his French infidel propaganda were used to print Bibles. Then they took those Bibles and they put them in his house in Geneva. Who's Voltaire? Who is the Chinese government? Who is Russia? Who is, who is South Korea? No one's stopping this thing. You, you think Christians in northern India, in northern Nigeria are afraid? No, listen. The wave of Christianity cannot and will not be stopped. And hear me, that's you. That's us. That's us. And, and, and if nothing else, the way I would get excited about Mary Poppins and the way that my kids might not be excited about Mary Poppins is, is the excitement that I hope to give to you. That meant the idea of getting to travel to see a lot of churches around the world, God is doing so many crazy things and there is nothing that can stop it. And I'm not a prophet, I'm not saying anything, but I, I, I'm telling you right now, hear me when I say this, I would guess in, if Jesus doesn't return to three to 5,000 years, there's not going to be a lot of people who, who know or practice Buddhism or Mormonism or being Jehovah's Witnesses. But I promise you, Christianity will be around. Yeah, there. Okay, thank you, Tracy. Now, here, Tracy, you clap, but here's what's crazy. Um, don't ever clap again, Tracy. Um, to, before we get specifically what happens with Bar-Jesus, let me read something to you from Charles Spurgeon, okay, um, who talks about this idea. My man, Spurge. I call this scary Spurgeon, okay? This is... This is uh, what he says. Woe unto the man who dared to provoke our God. No man can set himself against God without frightful peril to his own soul. The greatest of men become base when they rebel against the light. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Kiss the sun, lest he is angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Rivers of water should run down our eyes and hearts should be filled with horror at the blasphemy of those who set themselves with deliberate intent to impose the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's scary Spurgeon. No, Josh, I told you to put scary Spurgeon as the, it would have been a great, it would have been really funny. Um, I'll fix it second service. Um, But here's what, you read that and you go, oh dear God, who are we? Who is Bar Jesus? And here is Bar-Jesus standing next to the proconsul Sergius Paulus, and he's opposing, it's not Paul and Barnabas, he's opposing the faith. He's opposing this thing that's growing with reckless abandonment. Now, as exciting as it is to recognize that nothing can stop this 
ever building snowball of Christianity. It's actually weird that Bar-Jesus isn't doing it like Voltaire. And he's actually not doing it like maybe governments have done it. He's not doing it like Roman councils. That's not how he's doing it. Listen to to, to what's being said here. Verse 9, as he opposes them, it says this, But Saul, who is also uh, called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. We're going to come back to verse 9. And said, you son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. We're going to come back to all of that. Listen to what he says. This is him describing Bar-Jesus. Will you not stop, here's our money statement, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. So to be clear, he is, look at verse 8. Bar-Jesus is turning people away from the faith and opposing the faith, okay? By making the straight paths of the Lord crooked. Okay, so, so there's a different type of opposition towards Christianity. Now, now hear me, this, this tells us two things. We can assume two things from this. One, there are straight paths of the Lord. Are there not? There are ways in which God says, this is the way it's supposed to be. If you do it this way, it is not sinful. But it also tells us another thing. There are crooked ways in which bar Jesus or many people before him and after him, and maybe some of us, can take those straight paths. We can, we can crooked those things. So again, in verse 8, turning people who are opposed to this. Now, this is what I, I, I think is um, interesting about this. Looking back at verse uh, 10, making crooked the, the straight paths. That, that word crooked, like literally translated is polluted. Like everywhere else in the New Testament, it's translated polluted. Quite honestly, what he's saying is, Bar Jesus, who do you think you are taking the paths of the Lord and like, like molding them into something different? You're polluting them. You're, you're, they're not straight anymore. And that's why, hence, we use this idea of crooked. He's, t- he's opposing it through deviation. Now, now, you may not hear why this is a big deal. Um, and this is where we go full circle. This is why we need to hear this account. Though it's exciting to come up against guys like Voltaire and Chinese governments, though it's exciting to recognize that Roman legions couldn't stop Christianity, it's also worth noting that that's not the only tactic. Actually, to be honest with you, um, in our culture now, that's rarely the tactic. You know what the tactic is? Taking Christianity and having slight deviations. This is, this is the difficulty of Mormonism, isn't it? And if you come from a Mormon background, I'm not like, or Je- so I come from a Jehovah's Witness background. My, my mom and my brother and sister are all practicing Jehovah's Witnesses. The, the, the issue with that is um, we would look at them and go, we're not on the same page. We're on different planets, no pun intended. We're, we're on different, but, but I, but I feel, but I feel comfortable in understanding Jehovah's witnesses and, and studying, um, the Mormon faith to tell you though they call themselves Christian, we're not the same. Now, um, yes, I think of Mormons and Jehovah's witnesses to see what bar Jesus is doing this moment, but I don't even think that's the greatest faith. So this is my, this is where I, I come to the point of what I ultimately want to communicate. I think within our own circles, um, outside of Mormonism, what, I, what we would call Protestantism or um, specifically evangelicalism, um, there's a greater threat that is going at um, our faith, that is deviating, that is making the, the straight path of the Lord crooked. Um, and, and, and there are a couple, but, but let me just mention one so you can kind of get your mind rolling behind uh, uh, some of these things. Uh, and, and again, my job in this moment is not to like, I remember months ago I brought up Benny Hinn and some people got really, really upset. My job is not just to call out people for the sake of calling out people. My job in this moment being filled with the Holy Spirit 
is to recognize that there are things that are deviating our faith, going against the gospel, pushing against the faith in the same way that bar Jesus is. And so there's something that some of us might not even be aware of, right? So let me give you an example of this. And this is only an example. There's something called the free grace movement right now, which um, free grace theology essentially teaches. And, and hear me, I have guys who, who, who are free grace. And I'll get to that in a moment. But free grace theology, which even when I say that, um, let's do this. I'm not putting you on blast. Do not be ashamed right now. How many of you have no idea what free grace theology is? Raise your hand right now. Okay, good. That's good. Most of you. So this is what's crazy. Almost 50% of churches in America practice free grace theology. This is, okay? Now, let me state this. I don't think those people are going to hell, okay? I think they're brothers and sisters who love Jesus. But let me walk you through what free grace theology is. Just for a moment, give me grace and let me get there, okay? I promise we'll get there. Free grace theology essentially teaches that Jesus, um, he can be your, your savior. He can save you. But he doesn't necessarily have to be Lord, meaning theologically what they would say is to come to Jesus doesn't require repentance. So, so the question on the table is in regards to justification for you to come to Jesus, do you have to repent for your sins? That's the question. Now, some of you go, yes, you do. Okay. Here's the problem. Biblically, Romans 10, 9, Romans 10, 13, I mean, John 3, 16, Whoever comes to the Lord and confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved, right? So in this moment, there's this wrestle of going, well, you're right. The the Bible doesn't tell us we have to repent of our sins to accept Jesus Christ. Now, we'll get to how that's wrong in a second. But the idea is that you can live a life in such a way that you don't have to repent for your sins. He's already saved you. You are saved, okay? Now, everything within me goes no. Okay. It's interesting that Wayne Grudem even calls this an in-house issue. He's one of the greatest systematic theologies right now, uh, in in the world. And he calls this an in-house issue. I don't think people who practice, um, the, or in the free grace movement are not Christian, but hear me. This is, this is my point why I'm saying all this. It's a lot to say. I think the free grace movement is starting to walk towards making the straight pass of the Lord crooked. I'm not going to say outright that they are, But when we remove repentance, when we remove the fact that we have sinned against the Lord and we are to repent of our sin, if we were to remove the second song of our gathering on Sunday every week, I think we would take issue with that. And most churches, I don't want to say most, I'll say at least one third of churches practice this idea theologically and we don't even know it. So, so listen, it's beyond just the free grace movement. It's individualism. There's nothing wrong with individualism, but individualism starts to go, well, you're making this line and it's, and I don't like it. So all I'm trying to put in front of you is what bar Jesus is by opposing the faith. What he is doing is he's polluting the faith through compromise. He's polluting the faith through something that looks like the faith. So what should our response to that be? Because I think there is this like imperative that's put in front of us with this passage. I want you to listen to, to what Paul says as we just read in verses 9 and 10. Um, he says this, um, but Saul, Luke says this, but Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Filled with the Holy Spirit, He pronounces judgment. He makes a call. Hear me. He says, that's not right. Now, I'm not saying anybody needs to roll into a church as they look up some doctrines and go, wrong. That's not my point. My point is for you. Now I'm talking, let's go individual for a second. You, 
checking yourself and going, am I taking the paths of the Lord that are straight and bending them to work for me? Because if you are, first, as a Christian, you're to look at yourself and go, that's wrong. That's deceit. That's villainy. But as brothers and sisters, we're to look at each other and go, dude, I don't like the path you're going down right now. I spent five hours yesterday with a friend of mine who's on his way to, get divor- uh, on his way to getting divorced. And I cannot, for the life of me, make it any more clear that the, the, what he's doing and, and how he's going about divorce is wrong. But he doesn't want to hear it. And so, so, so here is this thing. We, we can, very similarly to bar Jesus, bend our faith to suit us. Listen to what D.A. Carson says. I think this is great. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. Relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards God, godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. This is true. And if we're not careful, 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 if we're not careful, we will begin to oppose the very faith we hold by compromising. And I think it's just worth noting. Something else here um, that, that I think is uh, bizarre, and I'm running out of time, but I want you to look at those words deceit and villainy. That word villainy only appears here in the entire Bible. And what's crazy about that, of the 25 main translations of the Bible, usually what you'll find, so like the word deceit that's there, there's between three and five um, different translations between the 25 main translations. So the word deceit had four, four different translations. Of this word villainy, there are 18 different ways to translate this word, which shows us translators don't know how to translate this word villainy. It's like uh, going to my kids and saying, um, so the opposite of a villain is a cop, and go, man, you've got coppery attributes, right? And they're going, what does that mean, right? And then I begin to describe, well, you're, you're brave, right? And I begin to describe these attributes of what a cop is. And it's real difficult, but the point is, what I think Luke is putting in front of us and the Spirit is putting in front of us, the way we can tell these slight variations of the faith is not just describing he's a villain, but describing attribute, attributes of the deviation. Does that make sense? We, be, we can look at things and go, that doesn't look right, man. Like, like you're, you're, you're sleeping with her, you're not married, and I understand you're trying to justify it all kinds of ways, but it's not right. It's not right. Like, you, you've got that office flirt, and like, she's kind of like your work spouse, and like, and it's, and it's kind of okay with you, but, but it's not right. It, it looks like a villain. It, it looks deceitful. It looks ungodly. It doesn't look like our faith. And that's a deviation that you think it's okay. So, Jesus, don't play no games with this kind of stuff. Um, and apparently neither does Paul. Because listen to this, verse 11. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So Paul goes, that's not okay. You're blind. Now, it's just, I'm, I keep going on these side things. But verse 11 is crazy. I think the Spirit sometimes gives texts that kind of go, you see that? Look at that. And verse 11 is one of those things. I love that it uses the word behold. In Greek, it's like look or see. So it's like a figurative see. He goes like this. Paul goes, 
look, you're blind, right? I love that. That's hilarious, okay? You see what he's doing there? He's like, you see? And then I love that the hand of the Lord is upon him, and he's misleading people by taking them away from their faith, and then the text ends with him blind, needing to be led. I I think that's the spirit going, you see what I'm doing there, right? Okay? Has nothing to do with our, you know, but it's cool. Verse 12, let's finish out our text and, and wrap this thing up. Then, so the proconsul sees this, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teachings of the Lord. You see that word astonished, it means like deeply impressed or like shaken to the core. In this moment, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, sees what's happening and he's moved by what happens. But I want you to hear, listen to the word that ultimately brings him to the faith. He's moved by, listen, astonished by the teaching of the Lord. So this power that Paul displays through the Holy Spirit opens up something that goes, look. And this is the offer that I think Acts 13 is giving to us. That, that never, ever, ever, ever is Jesus going to give up. I, I love it. Even in Romans 9, when you get into the whole Arminian-Calvinism debate, at the end of the day, I think Calvinism has something in their pocket that we can go, in Romans 9, go, listen, um, even vessels prepared for wrath, as much as we don't want, I'm not going to talk about but he still endures with patience. Jesus still goes, come here, to every single person over and over, offering this, turn, turn, repent, believe, come to me, son, come to me, daughter, you're, you're, you're going off the path, return to me, you're going off the path, return to me. And here's the proconsul moved by what he sees, and it's the teaching, it's the teaching of this faith, it's hard facts. It's the spirit moving going, you're wrong. And that's okay. Because Jesus has, has died for all of those wrongs. Now come to the faith. And I love the fact that Sergius Paulus, through this whole thing, is just a witness like we are. Here we are, just watching what God does. And so I'm going to finish with Spurgeon again. He's not as scary this time. But, but this is, uh, I think, worth noting as we wrestle with... Um, as if you're a non-believer in here, what it means to, to not follow right now, Jesus. Um, if you are a believer in here, that you have taken parts of your faith, that I have taken parts of my faith, and I've contorted it to be okay, to be a little um, easier to follow because I drift towards ungodliness. I drift towards prayerlessness. I drift towards lack of reading. I drift, I drift, I drift. And at the end of the day, I can come back because the teaching of the Lord is always present before me. And that's what happens with Sergius Paulus. And this is what Spurgeon leans into. Um, so I always, if you always wonder why I, I, well, not always, but try to finish with Spurgeon is because when I'm done with my message, um, I'll always read how Spurgeon preached that message. And it's always better than the way I preach it. Um, but I'll read it. And every time he finishes, I'm like, why couldn't, I should have finished like that. So this is how he finished preaching uh, Acts 13. Come then, my hearers, come and candidly study what is to be believed. That's such a money statement. Oh my gosh. Come and candidly study what is to be believed. Come and be astonished at the doctrine of Christ crucified. Incline your ears, awaken your minds, and yield your hearts. Be eager to be instructed by the Holy Spirit who waits to teach you. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. If you desire to know God, you shall know him. The great father is not far from any one of you. There is the light. There is the light. It is not dim nor far away. 
Oh, that you would cry out, Lord, that I might receive my sight. Then you would see and believe and live forever. This is our prayer now. God, grant it this very morning to the praise of the glory of his grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for um, reminding us that in this moment, um, we experience in a lot of ways what Paul and Barnabas are experiencing, and we even experience in our own soul the idea that um, there are people who oppose the faith by, by taking your right ways and slightly deviating from it, making those straight paths crooked. And, and yet, at the end of the day, here's a man in Sergius Paulus that you've historically given us an account of, and he has a decision to make. He, he can listen to Bar Jesus, or he can listen to what is the true faith. And by your grace, he, he chooses that. And my prayer is that would be us as well. That we would constantly rely on the gospel. That we would seek the word of God to, to, to know your straight paths and, paths and to know when we've deviated from them. Some of us in this room, um, even in a hard-hearted way, want nothing to do with your straight paths. And we want to follow our crooked ways. And, and, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us that you would draw us and you would remind us of your good teachings found in your word and they would bring us home to you. Thank you for that. Thank you for this offer that's always ever before us. We love you. We praise you. We need you, Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.